0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we're fellow travelers on a journey that takes us from the Falkland Islands to the Chatham Islands to the Golden Archipelago. Our guide is Jonathan Myberg, principal songwriter and lead singer of the band Shearwater. In addition to his music, we discuss what animals might survive us in the apocalypse and what faith looks like to a geographer. Stay tuned. Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakis. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it. And I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know. I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay. Here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you today because this is my old pal. I've known Jonathan Myberg for about 20 years. He is a musician, and he and I have played music together over the years. He is also a passionate amateur ornithologist, which means that he he goes to remote ends of the earth, and he studies birds and the habitats that birds live in. He is the lead singer and songwriter for the band Shearwater, and we'll be talking about his music, his passion for birds and birding, and what that makes him think about in terms of the state of our world today in the course of our conversation. Jonathan Myberg, welcome to Things Not Seen. Hi, David. It's great to see you or to hear you. (laughs) It's good to be with you, too. So I, I want to start by just orienting our listeners to you both as a musician and performer, but then also as a person who lives in a world of science and observation. So if you could just tell us briefly about those two foci in your life.
1: Professionally, I'm a musician, or I have been for about the last 12 or 13 years, sort of slugging it out in the, among the middle, mid-level rock bands of the world, touring in the United States and Europe with my band. We released, gosh, a lot of records at this point, on, um, uh, Matador and Sub Pop. We're still with Sub Pop Records now. And we put out a record just earlier this year called Jet Plane and Oxbow, which I think of as kind of a oblique protest record about the United States, which has unfortunately grown grown more and more appropriate as the months have gone past since its release. The other part of my life, you mentioned that, that, that I'm an amateur ornithologist. I have a degree in geography from the University of Texas, but th- that interest in birds originates in a trip I made in 1997 through the Thomas J. Watson Foundation to the ends of the earth. It was a project called Community Life at the Ends of the Earth, which meant for me that some of the most remote places I could find, or that I could imagine, back when I was 21 years old, including the Falklands here at El Fuego, uh, Aboriginal settlement in Cape York, Australia, the Chatham Islands of New Zealand, and an Inuit settlement in the Arctic in Canada. And on that trip, my eyes were opened to the to the world of strange birds that live in strange places, and they uh, set me wondering about that part of the world and uh, that part of the life of the world that I hadn't. Ever really considered? Uh, because I was able to see during that trip some places that I wouldn't say were untouched by the the hand of human beings, but were barely touched by us. And the feeling in those places is so astonishing that it really scrambled my brain and sent me back to school to learn more about it. And then eventually, once I was done with school and and in my music career. Um, to sort of keep thinking about it, keep going to places. And uh, there's one set of birds in particular from South America that has uh, been leading me on this sort of quest for long enough that I'm actually writing a book about them now.
0: And is that the striated caracara? Do I have that name pronounced right?
1: Striated, yeah. Striated caracara is one of the species. There's actually 10 species of caracara. And they're this weird offshoot of the falcon family uh, that's pretty much only in South America. Uh, They originated there. And they're almost like there's no there's no crows in South America, and sort of they're they're almost as if you built a crow on a falcon chassis. So you have a, a bird of prey that's social and intelligent and eats all kinds of things. Um, it doesn't. They just don't follow the regular raptor script. And in telling their story in this book, I, I try to tell the story of really their entire continent and what happened to it over the last. 50 or so million years and the people that they live with now.
0: Well, and I, I actually, I, I want to take a, a shorter period of time because you went in 1997 and you fell in love with this bird and this area and then my understanding yes. is is that a, about a decade later you had a chance to go back and look again with new eyes, newly trained eyes at the same location yes. and same area and I'm wondering what changed in that decade in, in what you saw in 1997 and what you saw in 2007 or so?
1: Well, well What you're talking about specifically is the Falklands, which is where I've met striated caracaras. Striated caracaras are the largest and rarest of the caracaras, and they live around colonial seabirds like penguins and albatrosses and these little burrowing petrels called prions and diving petrels. And in the summer months, they feed on the the chicks and eggs of these huge colonies of seabirds. And in the wintertime, they have to make a living off anything they can find because the seabirds are gone on the islands that they live on. They're nowhere else. They're only on these remote islands. And the riddle of they were doing there was what I was working on when I went back. What was interesting to me was that, among many things, was that I had a much broader sense of the context in which these birds lived than I did when I first saw them. You know, in 1997, the feeling was, oh my God, I can't believe the world is, could be like this. I didn't know about this. And in 2006, I could see him as part of a much broader picture of the distribution of, really, of life on Earth, as birds especially, and how they had ended up on this, you know, far-flung little
0: fragment of the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. we're speaking today with Jonathan Myberg. He's the principal songwriter and singer of the band Shearwater, and he's also a passionate amateur ornithologist. Well, in, in looking back and in thinking about this, I I think about my own childhood and I think about the way that I experienced the world when I was my children's age. Now they're five and six and the world seemed so teeming with life. I have a memory of, of like walking in the dark with my parents one night and we stepped out onto the street and suddenly the street was awash. This was in South Georgia, awash with cockroaches that just ran across the street and <laughs> and that, that kind of natural fecundity seems to me to be lessening. I don't imagine that my children growing up in Chicago will have those same kind of experiences, even the experience of seeing the stars. We have to drive miles outside the city to have that kind of experience. And so when we think about the way that the world is changing, my first real question for you is, From my philosophical background, I used to tell my friends there's no nature anymore. But you've actually gone out and seen the wild. Is the wild still a viable concept? Is nature still a viable concept in the way that we should be thinking about the world right now?
1: Yes, (laughs) is the short answer. I think the idea that nature is somewhere outside of us is generally wrong headed, even though, with this, you know, those geologists are now designating the time in which we live as the Anthropocene, which they're But Last week there was a story saying that they're going to start that at the atomic tests in the 50s uh, because that's a geological signature that you can locate all over the world because of the fallout from the the atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons circulated in the high atmosphere and fell out all over the world more or less evenly. So there's this layer of radioactive particles that you can identify and, and trace to the 50s. So clearly human beings are having a huge impact on planet Earth but planet earth has had its clock cleaned multiple times it's been many different ways i mean there have been landscapes that that don't exist now in the past including like barren deserts with rivers of water running through them or tropical forests with ice caps it's it, it's a it's just it may have been the entire world may have been frozen over at one point they're not sure about that but it's uh, referred to as a snowball earth theory and then it's other times, the Earth has been has had no ice at all, and that seems to be a world that we're, we're heading back into now. We're heading back to a greenhouse world, uh, which we've already experienced in the, in the Cretaceous. Well, how hospitable that's going to be for human beings, I don't know, but we're not outside of this process, which is uh, iterated and reiterated multiple times. I mean, the Earth has been, if, if I could beam you back to a point in time before humans existed... Almost any point in time before humans existed, I think you and I both would be awed at what we might perceive as the perfection of the world. And that's been most of the Earth's history, by a long shot. We're a tiny, tiny blip in what's happened to it. And I think that's all we'll be, to be honest with you. But I do think there there is still a natural world that we can encounter. It doesn't, it doesn't stop with us. We're part of it. And... Many things have happened in the Earth's past that have changed the course of life, sometimes catastrophically.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the lead singer and principal songwriter of the band Shearwater, Jonathan Myberg. We're talking about the world, about art, and we're talking about his passion for ornithology, the study of birds, and what that makes him think about in terms of thinking about the natural world. So you were saying just a moment ago that you see us as just a blip on the horizon. But we from our from our vantage point look at the world as really starting with the beginning of human meaning and really kind of if I if I can say this, we we can't conceive of a world that exists outside of human meaning and human experience. There's a very there's a very human centered I think at one point you used the word hubris about it, isn't there?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I that's I don't blame us for that. I think we've managed to do quite a lot with our, with the minds that we have, in terms of being able to think beyond ourselves and reason beyond ourselves. So, I don't think that we're uh, evil, but I think we're limited, sort of by definition, uh, in terms of our conception of things like what's a long time, or even what's hot, co- what's hot, what's cold. I mean, there are uh, there are little tiny shrimps that live in in hydrothermal vents in the ocean that that live at, at temperatures that are hundreds of degrees. And it doesn't feel hot to them. I, I, I think you know we're, we're we're bound by our own biology in a way that's completely understandable, but nonetheless, you know what you and I are receiving through our, our senses is not everything that's there. It just can't be.
0: So I'm I'm thinking about a, a way that Aristotle used to describe humans, and he used to the word that he used in in Greek was zoon tuon logon, the animal that has speech. And I'm, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering kind of if, if you were to think about kind of the human relationship to the world, what, what sort of characterization would you give for us and for the way that we relate to the world?
1: Like what, like what makes humans different from the rest of the animal world, you yeah, mean?
0: Yeah, I guess so, yeah.
1: Well, that, that, I'm not really very sure about that one. That's one of those definitions that every time somebody puts a flag somewhere, they end up having to move it back across the next hill once somebody else does a, another set of experiments. First, it was that we had an idea of a self, and then we we were pretty sure that many animals now have this idea, Um, or that we had emotion, which has gone way by the board, or language. But animals have very sophisticated means of communicating with one another. And that's even at a pretty low level, I think. My suspicion is we're going to start seeing a lot more research about fungi in the next few decades and the way that they work with plants to enable sort of vast networks of of communication of a kind that it's it's hard for us to imagine because it doesn't rely really on a nervous system.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that even things (laughs) that we wouldn't normally think of, like trees and moss, have a way of communicating with one another.
1: Yeah, it seems like it. I don't know very much about this. I only know just sort of the, the tip of the iceberg stuff, but I wouldn't be surprised if we started seeing more and more about this. I have a friend who's studying fungus and is just... Buzzing with excitement because there's so much basic research to be done in the world of of fungi. I mean, they're more closely related to animals than they are to plants, but there's very little known about them. They hardly ever even get mentioned in, you know, like classes I took on evolution or genetics. Just sort of they're they're set off to the side as something that's just too difficult to think about. And uh, I think we're going to find that they're far more important to uh, life on Earth than we than we had ever given them credit for.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jonathan Myberg. He's the lead singer and principal songwriter of the band Shearwater, and as he describes it, he's a passionate amateur ornithologist. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself. And so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you. Uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, So that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're talking today about nature and the study of nature and the way that it applies to art and music with Jonathan Myberg, lead singer and principal songwriter of the band Shearwater and a passionate amateur ornithologist, which is a person who studies birds in the wild. Well, there's one other kind of angle that I want to take in this part of the conversation, and that is the way that I've experienced nature. When I've when I've experienced anything even approaching wildness, it's always still Mm -hmm. been a wildness that is very deeply socialized towards the existence of human beings. So, so I I walk Mm. I walk out and I see a deer, and the deer kind of knows who I am and what I mean in that space and reacts accordingly. But you've described experiences when you were going to the Falklands and other places where you experienced animals that never had socialization around humans and therefore were very bold and were, were territorial in a way that I've never experienced. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that for a moment.
1: Sure. It's funny because you feel like you've walked through a door into the dream time in places like this. Like in the Galapagos, for instance, where I worked on a study of Galapagos hawks. Darwin talks about being able to push a Galapagos hawk off the branch of a tree with the muzzle of a gun. And I can tell you that the way that I caught young Galapagos hawks was very similar to that just a few years ago. I had a bamboo pole with a little piece of like clothesline over the end of it tied in a noose and I would go up to a a young hawk that was sitting in a tree and I would just slowly place this noose over its head and pull it out of the tree. But it was watching me the whole time. And that kind of that kind of innocence, you know, as if you've just arrived on the, the you feel like you've arrived on the first morning of the world somehow, then this thing's looking at you with no idea of what you are, what your capabilities are, you know, whether you're a threat to it or not. And you realize how much of that, our idea of what a threat is, learned. And there may be some genetic component to it, but it's it's something that we have to acquire. It's possible to lose your fear of other living things. And in, in a place like the Falklands, um, like the birds that that really caught my attention, the striated caracaras, it's not because they're rare, it's not because they're hard to get to, although both of those things are true, uh, it's because when you arrive on their islands, uh, they just come up to you and start trying to look through your stuff. It's it's a really strange thing for an animal to do. You have this thought, like, don't animals run away? But It's, it's very odd to see them running toward you and then picking through your, you know, trying to t- open your backpack and eat your food and uh, and or even carry away your hat or your binoculars or things that they couldn't possibly have any use for or at least presumably <laughs> and yet this this curiosity about anything that they haven't seen before has both an innocence to it uh, and also it's something that you I feel you can deeply identify with i mean this is a feeling that human beings have you see it in your children i'm sure This attraction to something, the the desire to know about it. I don't know what this is. What can I do with it? How could it help me? Could I eat it? Could I do something else with it? Does it have an aesthetic appeal to me even? That's fascinating to see absent an instinctive fear of human beings that just makes us anathema to to most wild animals.
0: So... This is a show about religion and you are a person who has been shaped by the writings particularly of evolutionary biologists. Evolutionary biology, at least a certain subsets of my species of thinkers, particularly evangelicals, they're the great they're the great problem. Someone like Darwin saying that the world evolves not by a a logic of desire, but rather sort of a logic of patterns and natural selection. That's challenging to some of my listeners and some of their thinkers. And I just, I'm I'm wondering, first of all, kind of how do you look at Darwin as a, a figure that kind of shapes your thinking about the world and also possibly the way that you think about music?
1: About Charles Darwin himself?
0: Yeah, in particular, but you can expand it if you wish.
1: Well, a thing that's hard not to think about if you go to places that Darwin has been to, including actually the Falklands and the Galapagos. That, for one thing, when he went there, he was a kid. I mean, if I if he walked in the door in my apartment right now, give him a cup of coffee and and make sure that he was doing okay, and that was he moving into an apartment in the city, and where was it, and did he know how to use the subway system? He was just a really a, a naive in in many ways, and these places struck him very powerfully. Not what to say about Darwin's spirituality is, is difficult because Darwin was clearly very, very moved by the world. Darwin was not, Darwin was deeply curious about what, why the world is the way it is, and deeply attracted to the world. And the explanations that have been offered to him thus far by science as it was at his time did not seem sufficient to his experience which is something, a feeling that I have a feeling many people who have a religious background can identify with, the, the sense that what you're seeing is not all there is. And I feel that what he what he saw was not a, a reduction of the world to meaninglessness, but in fact uh, an intimation of a process that's so vast and so complex that it, it pretty much defies our ability to actually fit it in our minds. When you think about the fact, or when you try to think about the fact that you are related to a tree in the same way that you're related to your grandfather. It's just a difference of degree, but not of kind. That's really hard <laughs> to, to fit in there. All the same, when we look at things like the universal genetic code, you know, the, the arbitrary sequence of amino acids that causes DNA to code for certain proteins, the, the arbitrary sequence of codons, within the DNA molecule that causes to code for amino acids, which build proteins. It's such a powerful argument for, and, and to me, proof of the fact that life really does have a common ancestor. If that's not miraculous enough for you, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> that's incredible. Darwin doesn't deprive the world of wonder and mystery. Darwin multiplied it many, many times over. In the same way that the, you know, the argument over the age of the earth, it seems to me so limiting to insist that by adding up the numbers in the Torah, we're gonna arrive at an actual age of the Earth as compared to what we've been able to find through geological evidence, through observing the rest of the universe as we can perceive it. And that the Earth is so old that if you if you compress the span of the Earth into a week, as I understand it, dinosaurs wouldn't appear until four PM on the last day and we don't turn up until, I mean, the Industrial Revolution is about a half a second before night. Our world is temporally much larger than we can ever really possibly hope to imagine. I just don't think, I can't think, it's hard for me to think of a thousand years. To think of 10,000 years is even more difficult, and a million years is nearly impossible. And then you have to deal with millions of millions of years, and it's, it's just beyond us.
0: Well, what's interesting to me is you, you mention how you know we have difficulty thinking about the oneness of life at the level of amino acids and things like that 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 seems to me to be mm-hmm. in some ways kind of a a problem of western religion if we look at some of the eastern religions instead of seeing differentiation they see essential unity you you are supposed to look at at other objects and say i am that and look at look at other people and say i am that and that seems to be more congenial to what you're saying but but i wonder am i am i looking at this too simplistically
1: well, there are people who would say you are. One of my favorite writers, Peter Matheson, in his book *The Snow Leopard*, talks a little bit about the you know persistence of matter since the, the time of the Big Bang, a very mysterious event in and of itself, by the way. But he uses it to sort of fashion a rejoinder to to God's question to, to Job of where were you when I laid the foundations of the universe, and the answer is I was there,
0: meaning you were there. Yeah, I mean, the, the
1: stuff that the stuff that made you up was there, and. For him, for Matheson, I mean, this ties into the the Buddhism that he eventually embraced with its idea of the, you know, with its focus on change, that like, both sort of change, but a kind of stability within change. That there's nothing but change, but all the same, it's all acting within a a sort of a closed system. Now, Nothing is really created or destroyed.
0: So the, the the basic elemental building blocks that make me up at the level of hydrogen and carbon, they were there at those early points, even though my consciousness wasn't. Is that what I hear you saying?
1: Yes, yes. Well, at least as, as far as we know, your consciousness wasn't. <laughs> the only one I can ask about that is you, and you don't remember it.
0: No, at least not yet. <laughs> but
1: th- often, though, there's a, yeah, there's a, I mean, I feel like there's a fear of, I remember talking with a man once,
0: we were talking about faith,
1: and he said that he had felt like if there was, without God for him, there was there was no way to tell his children that there was a good reason for anything besides because I said so, especially where where morals and, and ethics were concerned. And that just didn't feel sufficient to him, I think, because he felt that he wasn't sufficient as a person to be the source of, he felt like there had to be a source, a moral source outside of him. And that made a lot of sense to me, because to assume to take that burden on for yourself sounds like a... They're kind of a monstrously egotistical thing to do. But, so the question of what, I feel like this question of where morals come from and where the universe, where the matter and energy of the universe comes from, have been conflated in a way that's actually really not helpful for anybody. But I don't have a good answer to his question.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the lead singer and principal songwriter of the band Shearwater, Jonathan Myberg. We're talking about the world, about art, and we're talking about his passion for ornithology, the study of birds, and what that makes him think about in terms of thinking about the natural world. So you were just talking about morals, and you were just talking about the, the sort of need for an exterior, this conversation that you had with a person that said, well, I need something exterior to myself to help my children understand right and wrong. That really yep. like pushes me up against the question that I've wanted to ask you for a long time. Do you personally, Jonathan Myberg, have a faith, mm-hmm. and do you have a way of articulating that faith, or is, is it pure science for you?
1: Well, I don't think that's an or question. I think that's part of the problem is it's been framed in that way so often. For me, I can tell you, as far as religious practice goes, I was raised in the Episcopal Church, which I still have a very deep and abiding fondness for, partly because of its respect for ritual. And the Episcopal Church is such an interesting test case because it's part of the Anglican Church, which was... You know, derives, it identifies itself as Protestant in the United States, but it derives from a very different historical moment than the rest of the Protestant missions, in that it was created as a political expedient so that Henry VIII could get a divorce. And so then you have the, the ritual, which was basically preserved from the Catholic Church, more or less, for the Roman Catholic Church. But then you can sort of see this: it's like a speciation moment, where the theology of the Episcopal Church begins then to take its own course, that ends up being somewhat different from the Roman Catholic Church, even though the ritual, the service, as the Episcopalians would call it, or the Mass, if you're Catholic, are so similar as to be virtually identical. And their belief in the power of that ritual and the necessity of that ritual, and in fact the necessity of kind of subordinating yourself or your individual personality to that ritual, is one of the things that I really love about it. They also have preserved a lot of church music that just aesthetically, I think, was a big mistake for the Catholic Church to throw out. A lot of it still survives... (laughs) <laughs> on an isolated archipelago <laughs> composed of, the, of various Episcopal churches. Since I left home in high school, um, I've never found myself really going back to Episcopal church or to any church as a, as a regular ritual. I've, I've pretty much left that behind, and I had a really sort of scary or, or difficult moment some years back when I went to a Christmas service with my father, which I always liked to do. And I found myself seeing the parts of the service that I'd said for my my whole you know my entire childhood and teenage years things like the great thanksgiving and and just standard features or even the nicene creed which is and i thought i don't i don't believe this this just seems bizarre to me now and it was just very uncomfortable feeling because it had always been a source of comfort to me in the past but it just kind of turned to sand in my mouth so i left there feeling I, i felt like i was doing something dishonest by being there and since then i haven't been back but all the same you know I do a my job, even as silly as it might seem, in doing a playing playing shows, basically doing a, a theatrical performance, which is really what playing in a rock band is, has so many of the same features of mass or a church service. It follows the same ritualistic rules in a lot of ways. There are a lot of rules to it. And the idea is to have an audience that agrees with you on the rules of the situation and then through the actions that you take you kind of work with them to try to to summon a different world for a short period of time. And it's hard to see that hard not to see that as an active as a religious act.
0: Well, something that strikes me something that strikes me about what you just said about the Episcopal Church as well that I'd never thought about before, but the Episcopal Church is or the Anglican Church was fundamentally in many ways a church that subtended colonialism. I mean that the Dutch Reformed Church did as well, but when you go to yeah. these far-flung places in the earth where the, you have these isolated animals you mentioned, your sort of colonial birds, and that's that's <coughs> very much created by the same sort of ethos that the Anglican Church was living in. I mean that that whole time and mindset. Am I wrong about that or do I have that right?
1: Well, you're talking about British colonialism, and the British took their church with them, and the spots that they went to, they left it. And but then, in the places where they've left it, you know, we, we now see the Anglican communion on the moment of a of what seems like a possibly a great speciation event, in that it might finally fracture apart completely, and that some of the churches within it might be so mutually unintelligible to one another that they they are that it seems appropriate to recognize them as separate traditions.
0: So we can really utilize some of the analysis in biology and biogeography to think about things as remote from biogeography as as denominations. Is that a fair characterization?
1: <laughs> I think it probably is. Actually, it, it seems to, to you know there are moments when there are certain bio, biological processes that lead to rapid speciation, and there's a lot of debate about this about what are the things that cause uh, what's a species pump, so called what. The environmental conditions cause massive radiation. Often it's, uh, it's trauma of some kind. You know, The, the world has its, has its clock cleaned by an asteroid um, at the end of the Cretaceous period. And within a relatively short period of time, in tens of millions of years, we see almost all of the radiations of living birds, like all the families of living birds, are pretty much already represented. And that's because they had a, they had a clean slate to move into. Their competition was eliminated.
0: So, when we think about these, these sort of changes, you know, you, you yourself have moved away from your home faith, which was Episcopalianism. You now have, you now have sort of stepped out into, would it be fair to say an individuated spirituality? No spirituality? Is it a, is it a church of rock and roll or, or is, or does it not even have any good kind of way of talking about it?
1: I don't like it when people say I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, just because it sort of seems like a cop out. But that may be just because I haven't I haven't been willing to to cop to a cop out. But cop out of what, I guess, is the question. Maybe it's more maybe it's more of an opting in. I have a I have a deep respect for the religious impulse in people. I think human beings behave religiously as part of our genetic makeup for reasons that are still somewhat obscure to us. Although our our sort of ceaseless quest after an understanding of why things happen. And and we're always arguing over the cause of things. I think there is a good argument to be made that one of the functions of religion is to soothe that itch, because it can drive you crazy. Then the instruments of of religion and and its rituals sometimes get grafted on to various political ideologies for one reason or another. This happens all the time, and it's not exclusive to any particular faith, or it doesn't seem to be. That's something to... It's something that makes me very angry because I think of I think of the faith in which I was raised as being not not apolitical exactly, but but politics were definitely not something that it discussed in particular beyond things like helping people who are in need, whatever that means. And I think of the rituals and structures of that religious tradition as being very beautiful. Um, and when I see them used for ends that seem Really, just not so much hateful as they're as narrow and a kind of emotional junk food that makes you really angry.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with musician and passionate amateur ornithologist Jonathan Myberg. His band is Shearwater. Their recent album is Jet Plane and Oxbow. We'll be back in a moment. I okay.
1: can't help it. All the world is under. Life is gone While you calling out this name
0: here earlier in the show i talked about podcast monetization through advertising but let's say that you as a listener don't have anything to sell right now but you still want to support things not seen we can make that happen here's how it works you could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation it would be tax deductible and that would be wonderful But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're talking today with Jonathan Myberg. He's the principal songwriter and lead singer of the band Shearwater. Their recent album is Jet Plane and Oxbow uh, on the Sub Pop label. He's also a passionate amateur ornithologist, which means that he's been to the ends of the earth, to places that human beings have rarely gone to. And he has seen species of birds and other sorts of animals and wildlife that he thinks about and talks about in his music and in a forthcoming book on uh, on the natural world. You've been to very remote places in in the world, places that people have very rarely gone to in terms of like Tierra del Fuego, the Falkland Islands, the Galapagos, but you've also had another type of very rare experience. You've stood on a stage and you've looked at throngs of people and they have uh, few people get a chance to have that kind of vantage point. <laughs> Not always
1: throngs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but few people get a chance to have that kind of vantage point. And what I what I want to ask you about is as you look at bird flocking behavior and you look at crowd of human beings, are there similarities or differences? What do you see in those two experiences that resonate?
1: Oh, gosh. I don't know if I would even feel comfortable comparing birds flocking to audiences. And I should say, by the way, I'm not only interested in birds. Um, There's a concept of a birder that can be a little bit limiting in that you think of someone who's obsessed with seeing a certain number of birds in their life that's basically you're just out collecting birds, ticking them off on a list, that kind of thing. and that's an aspect of of looking at birds that I really don't like because for one thing, it sees them almost as if they're in a field guide and that they just appear on sort of a blank background and on the other hand, it also makes it kind of acquisitive when the 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 joy of it to me is just being with them in a particular moment, uh, sharing a moment with uh, an animal whose life doesn't really concern you in any immediate sense. There's a kestrel that lives behind my uh, apartment. Uh, it's a female, and I just, every once in a while, I'll look up and I'll see her sitting on a water tower. Or um, she'll just rush by the window, and then weeks will go by and I won't see her again. And yet I feel connected to her in some way. I've seen many kestrels before. It's not that I'm, I'm acquiring some new species of bird, but make, I'm, I'm forming a, a bond, a one-way bond, uh, with uh, an individual. And that, to me, is really very significant. I mean, I think about one of the things that stuck with me a lot from religion classes in college was Martin Buber's formulation that the the lines of extended relations meet in the eternal Tao. And looking at birds as a way that draws you out of yourself and into a larger world outside of yourself. I wouldn't say that the journey ends with birds for me. Um, They helped me out into that world, but They've also helped me to go much further. Last year I spent a fair amount of time doing research for my book in uh, southern Guyana and uh, some parts of the Brazilian Amazon. And the world that I was able to glimpse there was so complex, and so it, it felt so advanced, I felt completely irrelevant within it.
0: You mentioned with this kestrel it's a one-way relationship and you mentioned just now going down and doing this research you felt irrelevant. Are we as human beings trapped in a one-way relationship with the natural world with the wild? Is it always that we're looking into them and and putting anthropomorphic sort of notions onto them and they we're really not relevant to them except as a predator except as a, as a as a species that does damage to their nature? Is there is there really no reciprocity there?
1: Well, I mean, the Kestrel has learned to live in the city, um, and it, it has to deal with humans. It just doesn't have to deal with me personally. The writer of one of my favorite books, John Alec Baker, he wrote a book called The Peregrine, where all he does is follow uh, some peregrine falcons around near where he lived in, in England in the late fifties, I think, or early 60s. And when he's talking about human beings, um, he says, we stink of death. That's part of why animals are afraid of us. But uh, that said, I I think that animals are not incapable of adjusting to us. also if you give them just half the chance. We've seen kind of an explosion of urban wildlife uh, in the United States in the last few decades. Some of that is because uh, people aren't as opposed to it full stop as they used to be. But some of it doesn't have anything to do with our wishes or not at all. I think that one day we will probably see a bear in Central Park. Now, whether they'll let it remain there, I have no idea, but coyotes have turned up, for instance, all over the place. They've just spread on their own throughout almost every kind of habitat within the uh, within the United States. They did that without asking, but they did it because they adjusted to it. I heard ravens over my apartment in Brooklyn a few months back, and there haven't been ravens nesting in New York City in a really long time, but they are now. So I think there may be, if, if we give wildlife a chance to um, it 's going to find ways to accommodate us now we 're not always that uh, thrilled when they do. Um, you think about the animals that we really detest, like roaches or rats or city pigeons that kind of thing they often are the ones that have figured us out and learned how to live off of us and I don't know if there's a little identification going on there or what but uh, but we're we're not fond of them usually.
0: What's interesting to me about this in the in the Christian tradition there's a deep mythology that that uh, sort of rotates around this concept of stewardship, the notion that the world was given to us and it's our job to care for the world. Now, from my vantage point it seems like we're so we not blew that. Yeah, we're not doing a very good job of that. But, <laughs> but when I hear you when I hear you talk, it's not as distinct a difference. There you see us if I'm hearing you correctly, much more as part of a very long-term process of creation and destruction and change and that in the same way that i'm that i'm thinking too much in terms of of human centeredness i may be thinking of our disastrous effect in too great a, a register as well or am is there something to this blown stewardship notion or is this really just part of the natural process
1: well Life on Earth will survive without us. I think even if we were to launch all of our nuclear weapons, there would be still some form of life eventually. Um, But we've certainly made it harder, not only for other living things, but for ourselves. It's kind of like what I, I try to make this point about income inequality to people sometimes, is that it's not good for anyone, even the rich, because it creates a very brittle social situation. And in the same way, environmentally, what we're doing by removing the sort of plasticity of ecosystems to rebound from various stresses, um, to move in response to larger forces like climate change, for instance, like it's one. It's very. It's a big problem for national parks because if the ecosystem that a national park was at least partly meant to protect decides it's going to move north, um, for one thing, it may be trying to move north into a in response to, to temperature changes, for instance, or changes in rainfall. It may be. The only place for it to go may be a place that we've already completely taken over or urbanized or given over to pasture. And it may be inconvenient for us because we, we told that ecosystem to stay there within the boundaries of this national park, but it may have other ideas. Of course, this is giving it... I'm, I'm, I'm using a really kind of dumb metaphor for giving it uh, a consciousness, a centralized consciousness that it doesn't in fact have, but the, the end result is the same.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and if you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Jonathan Myberg. He's a musician. He plays with the band Shearwater. Their new album is Jet Plane and Oxbow. But we're talking more in this hour about his passion for ornithology and the natural world and the way that he sees the natural world informing our human day-to-day lives and the, the way that that has informed his art you just talked about the migration of a species from a protected space to a non-protected space, and you say we can't apply a consciousness to that. But there's something that we're running up against here that I I really am fascinated by, and that's there's two competing logics. There's a logic of desire. So human beings have a logic of desire. I wish to have a more comfortable thing, and so I I make a sofa. I wish to have a a better tasting food, and so I, I use fire. That's a logic of desire. But but we can also see a logic of patterning and a logic of response that doesn't necessarily have that animating desire, but still has an effect of conscious movement. Like it's better, the rainfall's better, the the temperature's better north of here, so we will move north of here regardless of there being a desire there. Am I am I hearing this distinction correctly, or is there something else? Or that it's the
1: accumulated the, the accumulated outcome of lots of different individual actions, which does I mean, sometimes involves what we would think of as a mind, and sometimes doesn't. I was really struck watching Werner Herzog's documentary about the Internet the other day. There's a scene where, with some little soccer-playing robots, and they play a, a version of soccer against one another. And it is almost impossible for your mind not to regard these little things as sentient, even though they're responding to a set of rules that are, you know, can be printed out. Uh, but you watch them responding to one another, chasing the ball, kicking the ball, catching the ball, Sometimes, even, <laughs> there'll be a moment where none of them seems to know what to do, where they're all sort of readjusting to what's just happened, and then they all move suddenly in concert as another one moves. And you, you see how very simple processes and rules can add up to a very complex behavior or that doesn't require uh, that the entire thing be worked out by some centralized mind. I mean, in fact, I, I think it's probably true that our idea of ourselves as a unity is really mostly a... Uh, an artifice, I mean it certainly is in that you 're composed of millions of cells, each of which has some degree of autonomy, but you think of yourself as one thing because it 's more convenient for you in, in to be able to to do things that
0: way so when when I think of something like what I called desire a moment ago in in your model, we might just be talking about a very high level form of flocking behavior is that fair to say
1: <laughs> maybe i, I it's amazing how simple rules can be to generate things that seem very complicated. This is what you know. Brian Eno is such a, such a fan of this with iterative music, and um, it's one of my favorite pieces of his. Is still the uh, sort of discrete music. It's, uh, the, the discrete music was a, he made a little. He made a loop of a couple of different notes that he was playing on a, a synthesizer, and he had two different tape machines that were slightly out of sync with one another. And as these loops would get out of sync, they would sort of generate new melodies. That's fine, but on the other side of the record, there's an experiment that I like in some ways even more, which is he took a string quartet and gave them the Paco Bell Canon, and gave them different instructions on how to play it. In the first version, uh, he asked them to play it as written, except that each one of them should uh, ignore the the, the written duration of any of the notes. They could play them as fast or as slow as they wanted, without regard to what any of the other players were doing, and so he does this and it's amazing to hear because they start off together for the first few notes and then immediately it becomes an entirely different piece of music. And it's very moving and beautiful. It's not the bell canon in any sense that you've heard it before, but there's this, the only difference is that he asked them not to pay attention to the duration of the notes. It's sort of a piece of music that's almost self-generated.
0: And so when we look at something like that, and when you think about that as both a musician, a person who plays in a rock band, and the rules of rock and roll is you stay in time, and usually it's, it's a 1-3 kind of time you know, on, on that kind of beat. So you, you think about that as, as a musician, but then you also think about that as, as a person who studied kind of evolutionary biology and ornithology. It must be firing off two very different sections of your brain in a very pleasant way, if I, if I can imagine that.
1: I don't know how different they are, Dave. It's, it all seems like very much part of the same thing to me. When I was in Guyana, I remember waking up in the morning and listening to just all the different animal and, and bird calls and sounds here in the morning. And the sound recordist Bernie Krause has talked about this, this concept of biophony. In a situation like that, where you have so many different species, because the, the tropical forest has, is one of the most specious places on Earth, they've... The ones that are using sound to communicate with one another, which is many of them, have to compete with all the other ones that are also making sound. And so what they end up doing is finding tiny little acoustic niches to live in, in the same way that the instruments in the orchestra do, but on a far greater, you know, by by an order of magnitude more complex. And so the result is this really complex-sounding sonic tapestry in which you can hear everything. And somehow it all still seems rather quiet, despite the fact there are thousands of voices all making sounds at once. It's, it's just it's staggering. It makes music not seem that amazing in some ways. But music seems to have a very special relationship with us to time itself. I mean, if there's one quality that music seems to have, I think it's that it can make our perception of time slow down and speed up in ways that, that seem almost magical. Um, it really short-circuits your perception of time as it normally is. And I think that's the, that's maybe the fundamental source of its magic.
0: When you think about your career, when you think about the way that you've looked at the world, when you think about kind of your approach to the natural and at times sort of decreasing diversity of the natural world, would you classify yourself as a hopeful person or a cynical person at this point?
1: I, th- I think that both approaches are right. Um, I-, I think... It's hard to know what's going to happen in the future uh, as much as we would like to believe that we we want to know and I think sometimes um, the this the, the fact that apocalypticism um, has surfaced in many religions over and over and over again like, is part of our our longing to kind of control the future and and relieve ourselves of the anxiety of the future um, where where we'd sort of prefer the eschaton to um, to this relentless unfolding that that uh, that threatens to change the world beyond our recognition of it. Um, I think that would be the horrifying thing about living forever. If you do it, um, is that the world would you, you might cease to recognize it after a while. But well, we will never be relieved of our anxiety about the future. The fact that we can conceive it in the first place is is means we're going to be we're going to worry about it. Uh, sometimes I think I don't think that animals don't worry about the future. By the way. But I think they worry about it less than we do. And if you keep a pet, um, this is one of those, you know, maybe the most important lesson that they have for you, the po- most important message that they have for you. Um, they look at you and they say, now, 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 now. <laughs> and, in, you know, in our daily lives, it's very easy to forget that. The future really can't be, it can be influenced, but it can't be controlled. Uh And often I think that the more sort of boom, Versions of, of ideologies, political, religious, what have you, are stem from that desire to, to control the future.
0: Well, Jonathan Meinberg, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and I'm really glad to get a chance to talk to you, and I hope that you'll come back, because I'd love to talk to you more about this, but for right now, our time is done. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: David, thank you. It's really been a a great pleasure. I I rarely get to do interviews like this. Mostly people want to know about the, the new record or the new tour, and you can only answer what it was like to play with Coldplay so many times.
0: Well, good luck with both the new record, with the tour that's coming up, and with the book that you're working on, but thank you for being with us today. Thank you, sir. We've been speaking today with Jonathan Myberg. He's the lead singer and principal songwriter of the band Shearwater, which records on the Sub Pop label. Their new album is called Jet Plane and Oxbow. In addition to his musical touring, Myberg has traveled the world actually to the ends of the earth, from the Falkland Islands to the Chatham Islands and other remote places, to study birds and other wildlife in their natural habitats. He holds a degree in geography from the University of Texas at Austin, and he's working on a new book about the striated caracara and the world that it inhabits. You can find out more about his music and his musings at ShearwaterMusic.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. David Dalt engineered the show. Jim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scrogan is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dahl, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.